Hi, this is Ty France, and you're listening to the Friars on the Farm podcast. Welcome to Friars on the Farm podcast. I am Donovan, and coming to me via Skype is Roy for our hundred celebration, dude. Hundredth episode. I I can't believe. Uh, I'm actually sitting at the desk where I first started this podcast with an old computer, nervous as hell. I mean, I had prep up to my ears, and I still didn't know what the hell I was doing. And, uh, and uh, God, I, I just brought you on, and things got so much more legit since you've been here, Roy. Well, thank you. I, I, I only take a small slice of the credit. You do most of the legwork here. Um, and this really is your your brainchild. Um, it's it's a fun ride, and I'm a hundred is a big milestone. Um, so I'm excited to be here. And I'm looking forward to whenever baseball starts back up, so we can actually talk about real games and stuff. God, you know. But until then, we're gonna have uh, Dr. Meredith Wills and Emily Walden on our one hundredth episode extravaganza. Uh, that's yes. gonna be, that's gonna be really cool. So, how's your week been going, real quick? And then we'll we'll bring these guys on. Um, it's been pretty uneventful. I mean, it's just hanging out at home. Fortunately, I can work from home. Um, I'm also fortunate in that I still appreciate the company of my wife. I, I feel for the people that have a hard, hard time getting along with their significant other and they're trapped in, uh, trapped inside all day. Oh, I think she's coming over here for a cameo. Yeah, there she is. <laughs> <laughs> she's waving at our guests. So yeah, no things are things are good. We, the pool is open for business. Uh, it's finally warm enough that we can take the cover off the pool and take a dip in there. So yeah, it's it's life is not too bad in my little quarantine bubble, dude. It, How's it, things going for you? It's going fine. Uh, I'm we're right at the tail end of my two weeks paid vacation or two weeks admin leave. I go back to work on Sunday. Liddy's been working from home ever since you know kind of since the beginning of the last month or whatever. A uh, poor girl because I'm like, what are you doing? Shh, I'm working. What are you working on? Shut up right now. I'm going to go into a meeting. Literally, she had, um, she was going into a meeting and there was a knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. And we're like, who the hell is that? Um, friends of ours that we haven't seen for a while sent us a, um, one of those edible arrangements. And oh. like two minutes, literally two minutes going into this meeting with, with her boss and all these people in her office, uh, we get this package of like chocolate dipped strawberries and edible and edible flower arrangement and we're like yeah and uh so we've been doing nothing but getting fat eating food and uh you know it's funny the cat just the cat's been acting kind of weird it wants to eat all the time i have to feed it it's getting loud when it usually wouldn't be so loud um, grumpy cat god no she's like, ah, ah. like what do you want from me i just fed you she must be saying like what the hell are you doing here get a job yeah, she wants some peace and quiet. She wants to, some alone time away from you guys. So before we get to our guests, I do want to make a shout out to our friends at Two Strike Noise, uh, a podcast and a YouTube channel that were nice enough to have us on as part of their their uh, their what was it Wax Pack Heroes contest. Wax Pack. It's the first annual Bump Bailey Wax Pack Heroes Tournament of Awesome, brought to you by Two Strike Noise. Oh, thank you for pulling that whole title out. I could never remember all of that. So we opened a pack of baseball cards. Well, they opened the pack, but us and another, the Hunshin Tigers podcast, uh, we each had a pack of baseball cards. We opened them. There were some rules, and we, the the contest was to see 
whose cards had the most value. Unfortunately, we lost, but we had a we had a great time. Well, we lost, and let's not tell, let's not forget how we lost. So, one of the uh, cards that they got, you know, they base uh, not only the value from the actual value of the card, which is anywhere from, from the like, 1992 Beckett book. Uh, the 1988 deck is what we went through, and it's like maybe a, a four cent card is like a really nice card. <laughs> Uh, the Henshin the Henshin Tigers News podcast got a 1988 Tony Gwynn card with the mustache, so they, which is points, with the stirrups, with the Hall of Fame. So it was like a, a, a eight cent. It was like an eight cent value card. No, it was seventeen cents. Yeah, it's seventeen cents. Yeah, and so we wound up losing to them by like six. Like no, it was like three cents. We almost came back and won it anyway. Credit to them. We lost in the most bitter way possible, but it's all good. It is all good, but you guys can't see is that the cat just walked across Meredith's screen. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a, a very friendly cat. That is a very big cat. So uh, Actually, this is a small one. Oh, yeah, this... <laughs> well, let me get this. Let, let's, introduce our, uh, let's introduce our guest here real quick. Dr. Meredith Wills has a PhD in astrophysics and is currently a sports data scientist uh, contributor for The Athletic. Her research has uncovered inconsistencies in baseball, in Major League Baseball, has said, oh, Jesus. Her research has uncovered inconsistencies in baseball. MLB has said it used in the season and in the playoffs. Meredith is also a Hall of Fame and Negro League Museum knitter recreating reproductions of vintage baseball sweaters. Emily Walden is also an award-winning writer and is a national prospect writer for both The Athletic and Baseball America, along with covering the Tigers minor league system. In recent years, she has grown smitten with the Padres minor leaguers and has written several articles on players. She is not shy about her affinity for Luis Patino. We share that affinity. A fierce advocate for minor league players, Emily has given a voice to the voiceless, and her evaluation of players is quickly earning her respect from scouts and player development people alike. Welcome, Meredith, and welcome, Emily. Hi. Thank you so much. I butchered. One minute before we started this thing, Roy went to make a change, and I don't, yeah, that just I happened. I threw a wrench in his, in his machinery. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I also need to apologize for people who aren't watching. There is video here, and both of my cats have been wandering across the video while they've been doing the interview. Well, we're not recording the video. This is only an audio track. So I know, but the point is just so people know why there's laughter in the background. <laughs> well, they're welcome to keep walking by. It's entertaining. Oh, they will. So are the cats keeping you company in quarantine up there, Meredith? You, you, that's one way to put it. Uh, you know, by the way, the, the cat being annoying thing, I've had the same problem. And it turns out that just wear the cat out with playing with them for like an hour early in the morning. And then they shut up in the sleep the rest of the day. Oh, I'm going to have to try that. That's what that's. I've learned this at this point. I've, Emily, how is your quarantine going? You know, it's not quite as sunny and warm as you lovely West Coasters being here in Michigan. So the Bay Area is not exactly sunny and warm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Michigan, unfortunately, is still going through a little bit of a identity crisis as far as what season it wants to fully embrace. So right now we're still sort of waiting it out, but it's definitely warming up and I'm just trying to be outside as much as possible. Well, I'm I'm trying to uh, to visualize being outside of the ballpark. I've got my backdrop here, the the diamond at Lake Elsinore, um, having fun here with Skype. So, bef- 
first off, I wanted to congratulate each yeah. of you for winning a Saber Award this year from the Society of American Baseball Research. Uh, Meredith won an award, the Contemporary Baseball Analysis Award, for her article, Yes, the Baseball is Different Again. An astrophysicist examines this year's baseballs and breaks down the changes, which was kind of the second article in a series. Um, And then Emily won the contemporary baseball commentary award for her her article. I can't afford to play this game. Minor leaguers open up about the realities of their pay and the impact on their lives. Both those pieces were published at the athletic. Um, And I should also give a shout out to Rachel McDaniel, managing editor at Fangraphs, for winning the historical baseball analysis commentary award for her article, the meaning of Ichiro completing an awesome trifecta of woman journalists being honored by the society of American baseball. So, Meredith, your article on the ball. So what got you started down that that road? Because it seemed more like a forensic analysis kind of a thing, really, than astrophysics. Um, well, you're right in that, that it's it really it has nothing to do with astrophysics. About the closest you can get is to just say that it does have to do with being able to ask questions in a scientific manner. Um, but I'd already gotten for the first work that I did, which was the 2017 home run surge, um, I was one of the one of any number of people who was looking for a reason for why that that happened. Uh, and at the time, nobody knew it was the ball that required the home run committee coming out and saying that. So it could have been the ball, it could have been the bats, it could have been the players, a lot of different things. But I'd already been doing work with the Hall of Fame, uh, particularly in the it turns out that the yarn inside baseballs is knittable. And so I had been doing knitting design stuff for with them for pieces that ultimately will get auctioned off in support of the Hall of Fame. I so saw I that. Really, yeah. So what I got really good that you're, at, that you're knitting out of that yarn that they're auctioning off. They're, they're, the, uh, the auction stuff hasn't come together yet, but there's, there's, there's some pictures I have up. Like I've got some stuff on Instagram and, uh, they're, they're, you can find them occasionally if you look around. But, um, but yeah, it turns out that the yarn is knittable, so I've gotten good at taking baseballs apart because you need a lot of baseballs to make something like a shawl or a sweater. And, you know, since I already knew how to do it and since I had ideas on how changes to the ball might have led to or might be connected to the first home run surge, and then when the home run committee came out and said, the ball's different. Something's about it's different. We can't figure out what it was or what it is. And I had actually found a difference, which was that the laces were thicker and everyone just cuts through the laces to open up baseballs, which is partly why no one found it before. Um, but so that kind of started it. And then uh, the 2019 home run surge, it, really that just happened because my editor came to me and said, you know, listen, uh, looks like we're getting you know more home runs again you want to take a look at the baseballs and she seemed to think that it was going to be this like hard thing to do and i foolishly said oh yeah sure i can do that no problem which is you know kind of i I mean i managed to do it but sort of over promising so but but yeah and it turned out to be uh completely different uh which mostly just goes to show you that a lot of times people will come back and they'll say so it's lace thickness right and it's like well no actually the lace thickness has nothing to do with it really other than in helping me understand some of the other changes but now it's completely different changes that ended up uh leading to the the 2019 home run search so now one of the more interesting things that i think fell out of that was that you i you rec you were able to identify that 
the balls that they used in the games and the balls that they were selling aren't necessarily the same ball, even though they're marked the same in everything. Actually, that wasn't me identifying it. That was Rawlings clarifying for me that anything that I had purchased from them by definition was not game quality. Uh, One thing that I, I actually can say is that I have really, certainly as far as the manufacturing process goes, um, and this had to do with the postseason. I'm fairly sure that if I were to hand even a pitcher one of the memorabilia balls from Rawlings and an actual game ball, and I have both, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Okay. So why the reason why uh, memorabilia balls are categorized the way they are, uh, you know, and and there there is good reason. You know, you you would see it during the regular season for sure, and that there are certain flaws. Uh, the ones that I happened to look at were really not particularly flawed. Uh, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It just means the ones I was looking at didn't seem to have them. So. Now, was there something about the direction of the stitching? Uh, sort of. It had to do with the, the side of the, um, the ball that the stamp was put on, which ends up making the stitching look like it go- looked like it goes in the other direction. It's oh. so like if you have two baseballs in front of you, flip one over to the unstamped side, and what you'll see, you got some behind you? Perfect. Okay. So, like, flip one over to, to the unstamped side, and what you'll see is that the direction of the laces changes. It goes the opposite way. So, um, there we go, right? So, flip one over and literally make the stitches line up, and then you see, like, you've just changed the direction. I got gotcha. you. Yep. So, they're stamped upside down. What I ended up finding out when I got game balls for the postseason, though, was that that turned out to not just be the case for the um the memorabilia balls but the game balls themselves actually a number of them were stamped upside down and i've since had that confirmed beyond my own sample and that i've had people send me pictures of authenticated game balls from every level of the postseason that have the stitches going in the wrong direction meaning they're stamped upside down so they used a lot of game balls in the postseason that had that particular quality control flaw. So how did you gather all of these baseballs? I, I can't really go into that. Okay. That's actually important that I, I can't go into that. It's not something that MLB, they're not through MLB. It was not something MLB was particularly excited about. So I had to, to get, you know, there's a good reason that I can't go into detail. How let me can can you tell us how many balls were part of your study for the postseason? It's actually not a lot. There were only ten, but the um, the reason that I could do that was it really just had to do with prove like disproving essentially MLB's statement that all of the balls used for the 2019 postseason were from 2019 regular season batches. And I had a number of baseballs that didn't fit that, um, you know, yeah. of the, of the 10 that I had seven did not fit that. Um, I also had, you know, three that, that were seven were stamped world series. Three were stamped postseason. of the three postseason I had. One of them was stamped upside down and had the stitches in the other direction. And so when you do that kind of a study, it's not a question of a statistically significant sample. It's just, do you have an exception to the 
the hypothesis to the to the statement that's being made. And so I'm able to disprove the statement as opposed to, you know, like that I need to say prove something is true. It's 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 two different things. Go Are science. Are able to establish that that's yeah. the, the I, I want to call it a serial number, but that's not right. But the, the lot information. Oh, batch code. Yeah. yeah. Were you able to find a trend with that and be able to correlate the balls? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, and that's part of it. In fact, the particularly for the, the, the 2018 balls, um, not only, and this, again, there's only a, a certain level of detail I can go into because the source thing turned uh -huh. out to be an issue. Um, of the of the balls that I had for game balls for the postseason, that um, it's not just that they had batch codes that were 2018. It's that the batch codes they had that were 2018 were identical to one of the sets of batch codes I had for those memorabilia balls. They literally were from exactly the same batches. So, um, or one of those batches. There were three actually that I had for the the memorabilia balls and one of those batches turned out to be the same. Plus the fact that the lace thickness did change between 2018 and 2019. So that became a backup because you went from thicker laces in 2018 back to thinner in 2019. And so, you know, there was, there was a num there were a number of consistent changes where it was, it's in fact, just heck, I could just hand you two baseballs and you could tell the difference. So, are we going to be calling you detective now? <laughs> detective. No, Doc's fine. <laughs> I love I'm it. My head's Doc now. My head's spinning. And boy, I tell you, as an astrophysicist, I mean, I can do a whole podcast on just my infinity for uh, astronomy and in, in, in astrophysics. Um, but once it starts getting into numbers and stuff like that, I just lose it. Now, Emily. I'm trying very hard to stay away from numbers, actually. Ugh. All I really want you to care about is something is more or less. I can, do, I, can, I can do more or less. Now, Emily, you, your article that won was almost as controversial, you know, just a controversial in itself with, um, with the stuff that you got writing about, you know, players being open with the pay or the less paid, you know, the, the amount of pay that they, they make. Yeah, that, that was really an interesting thing to me because I've never been somebody who's been a, I guess, quote unquote, cutting edge journalist. I've always been somebody who just presents stories and tells stories. And this was kind of a topic. And I know Meredith and I have, have talked about this. And can I just say how, incredibly grateful I am for having Meredith like as a role model in my life and this, <laughs> this is not this is not scripted I'm gonna throw her for a oh. loop right now yes but, you're absolutely doing that Jeez. well but the kind of the reason for that is I remember when I first came across her Twitter profile and I thought you know here's this really really cool person who's probably a million times smarter than all of us combined with all of the knowledge she has about anything and everything. But as we kind of got to know each other through our, our platform at The Athletic and getting to sort of bounce ideas off each other, it just makes you appreciate the camaraderie of having this passion to educate people about the game, whether it be the quality of baseball design or, you know, the, the reality of off the field life for minor league players. So just wanted to give her some public recognition for being fantastic. So that's my, my oh, little okay. thing. I, I, I'm going <laughs> to say thank you because whenever I, you know, I, 
Whenever I do that to people and they like brush it off, I always get annoyed when they don't say thank you. So I'm going <laughs> to not do what I would normally like. Yeah. But, but no, no, thank you. And I mean, it's, I, I get what you're saying though about the, uh, I think, who was I talking with is about that? Yes. It's really, really cool. For instance, that we had three women who won for Sabre. Yeah. Uh, but I also just feel like what we had was we had the three best, most topical pieces there. And so it, it doesn't have, you know, it's not like anybody just said, oh, yeah, look, here's 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 a woman who did this. It's, oh, look, here's really good, relevant reporting that needed to happen. And that's just how it works out, you know. So, like, I, I you know, and some of that involves luck, that, that what you're passionate about happens to be the thing that's a big deal. You know, I would argue Emily's stuff is actually much more important than anything I've been doing. Uh, you know, certainly in terms of like, you know, people's livelihoods, the ball well, is cool, but <laughs> I, I, I don't want to, don't sell yourself too short because when that was happening, I was reading stuff on baseball prospectus on fan graphs and all these people were putting out these ideas about what's changing and is it this or that you were the one that actually started dissecting everything mm-hmm. and, explaining your method about measuring the thickness of the rubber and the coefficient of friction and the diameter of the, of the laces and Nerd going alert. through the, the whole construction <laughs> of the ball, which I I've, love always been, I've always been fascinated by the, the manufacturing process. But then when you put it all together and it's like, look, you can see the data here yeah, that something is changing. And that, that was that was a very informative article. I understand what you're saying. We're talking about a ball in a sport and it's a marginal change in mm-hmm. a stat versus what Emily wrote about, which is something that has the potential to change the quality of life for thousands of players. And we're already starting to see some of that. I'd like to think that that I going back to Eno Saris writing the article with um, Eric, Eric Sim. Sim and and then Emily's article kind of blew it all open into the and it, it became part of everybody's awareness. Before that, people weren't talking about how much money minor leaguers are making and what they have to do to get by. Where when you laid it all out there, people really started to understand, holy crap, these guys are sleeping three or four guys in a one bedroom apartment, laying on sleeping on air mattresses, you know, living on McDonald's and ramen. Yeah, it, it, so it, they're, they're, they're very different. And then, and then Rachel's piece on, on Ichiro. I mean, he is a generational type of player and the, the trans Pacific kind of thing that he's with Japan. He's a, he's a global athlete. I mean, all three of them were fantastic articles on their own. Uh, yeah. And it's just by coincidence that all three of them happen to be written by women and that you all were recognized in the same year. I just, I don't. I just thank you for yeah. for doing what you guys do and continue to do what you do, um, and I'm glad, I'm honored to have you here with us. <laughs> well, and, and thank we'll- you, thank you so much. And it's I wanted to say too, just kind of going off of what Meredith said, one of the highlights of that whole experience with Saber for me is the fact that our pieces were selected not because we were women, but because it was really relevant content. And I know for me. And, you know, I'll let Meredith speak on this, too. I'm proud of the fact that I can be a woman in this sport and that I can educate people in this sport 
you know, that had the stereotypes for so long. And thankfully, these doors have been kind of kicked open by the women who came before us by saying, look, it doesn't matter if like what your sex is, it depends on what is your work ethic? What is what is the content that you're trying to put out? You want to just be respected for what you do. It shouldn't matter male or female. It should matter on the quality of your work. And I think that was really a step, you know, for Meredith, for myself, for Rachel, for all of these people who have poured their heart and soul into this game because of the passion they have for this game, not because we're out to try and prove something. We're like, look, we just want to show people how great this game is. We want to show people why we're so passionate about it. And for her to be able to do it on that platform with the ball design, for Rachel to do it on her platform, for myself to do it on mine, it all came down to three individuals who were passionate about the subjects that came to their attention and did their very best to present them in a factual, respectful way for the game that we've developed such a love for. And it was just, it was an incredible feeling to see that recognized the way that it was. Yeah. So Saber live streamed the award show and I happened to flip it on right when Meredith, when you were reading Emily's acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, so had, I'd like to hear both sides of how that, how that transpired. Well, well, I mean, I was I was extremely disappointed, and so Meredith got to deal with me being very sad and just going, "I just really want to oh. be there, and I can't be there," and I was so bummed out about it. Um, reason being, for people who didn't know, we made the decision. Um, me and Emma Span, who is our our editor at the Athletic, we made a very very difficult decision to cancel my trip, which ended up being two days before they eventually halted spring training. So the timing actually made sense, you know, in hindsight, but we made that decision and I reached out to Meredith and just said, you know, Hey, I'm not going to be able to be there. Can you read a few words for me? And she just delivered it in such an authentic, real way. And I just sat at home on the couch and I was like, Oh, Oh, it's so beautiful. I just love her. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's your words, but I, I was, I mean, I was, how would I put it because of what's been going on? Uh, both with the contraction and then literally, I mean, it was what, the day after uh, everything mm-hmm. had been shut down. And so it felt even more topical because, uh, you know, I was, and I'm even more so now, but my first response was, okay, that we're not going to have a minor league season. You know, like in March, I would have said, like, as soon as it's okay, major leagues, maybe uh, the idea of, just, you know, everything from getting the players uh, prepared, the season shorter, uh, the economics just becomes much more difficult. So having the minor, I'd love it if we had minor league ball this year. I can't really see it being feasible. And so it was like getting up there and sort of wanting to make it clear that this is already really important and that now it's an even bigger deal because, you know, like, I hate to say it, I think we're going to lose baseball entirely for 2020, but, you know, I could have told you in March that I'm pretty sure minor league was going to go. So, um, so, and that, that was, I thought, much more, much more important than saying, yeah, here, the baseball's different. So. Well, yeah, you guys both really keeping major league baseball uh, accountable, you know, not only for what for product on the field, but the players that come up to play major league baseball and h- holding their feet to the fire, I think is huge. So this last week, 
Uh, J.J. Cooper wrote uh, you know, the article in Baseball America stating that owners in minor league baseball were ready to agree to contraction. Um, and then, you know, I, I coming from him, you want to believe it. You want to, you know, it's almost you see the writing on the wall with what's going on with COVID-19. And, well, and then that weird statement comes out. And then, right. Which actually within the same day. Minor League Baseball releases this statement saying there's been no talk of that. We are both working on a solution for viable baseball. Um, but everybody, it's I've heard so many outlets pretty much all reporting that it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. You, you mean know, baseball th- in general or minor league baseball? No, that 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 Major League and Minor League Baseball are going to come to terms with the agreement that's going to include some form of contraction of the minor leagues. Well, at the rate we're going, I. Uh, you know, I would say unless Major League Baseball is willing to step up, which I don't think they will be, uh, it's not a question so much of contraction as I think they just need to wait long enough and 40 teams will go out of business. Ugh. I, I, hate- I, 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 oh. no, I, I mean, I, I, I don't like that I'm saying that, but it's, it's one of the things I find frustrating is that uh, everybody's struggling economically. Uh, minor league teams already operate on small, on thin margins. You know, regardless, the the the, the contracts are are between MLB and and or major league and minor league baseball. I think are more complicated than a lot of people realize, and I feel like a lot of the reporting is either one side or the other. It would be really nice to see somebody do a story where they they hit both sides and make people understand that. Actually, no, this isn't straightforward. And, you know, to, to even to line up good guys and bad guys or right solutions and wrong solutions isn't, you know, yes, we should be. We, I mean, here's the thing. Players should be getting paid a living wage. This is not a question. Um, yes, we need to find a way to keep baseball in these communities. Whether or not it needs to be a farm system. I don't know if that's the case. As long as we keep baseball and as long as, you know, we're not killing it, that's less important to me than are these farm teams or not. I just don't want them to go away. Um, But it's not an easy thing that is going to happen. I feel like at this point, for Major League Baseball to still want to be negotiating uh, when, you know, they're going to be solvent after all of this is done. Yeah. Uh, most of minor league baseball, I'm not really sure that's the case. And I feel like at the very least, these negotiations need to wait until we're sort of through as much of the economic devastation as possible, even to the point of it wouldn't be, it wouldn't, I wouldn't mind if major league baseball actually helped support these teams until, you know, or at least made sure they don't go out of business. Yeah. Well, so one thing that I've, it's been pointed out that none of the teams that are owned by major league uh, organizations are on the list of elimination. And as you point out, these, these, these franchises are struggling. They're already operating on shoestring budgets. I wonder if they're, if major league baseball is trying to move toward a situation where they own all of the affiliates in one form or another, Emily, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I know for me, like I've been talking with agents and um, some minor league fans and some other staff members from around the league just to kind of get a feel for how this is sort of impacting people. And at the end of the day, 
um, I think one of the biggest things that jumps out for me is what you're taking away from, say, the lower income small town families, where if you pull affiliated ball from these from these cities, you're taking away fans' opportunity to see future major league players because maybe a they can't afford parking, which we all know is reaching the point of absurdity, or you know paying for tickets for the game or traveling two to three hours to the nearest major league stadium. If major league baseball wants to market this game, pulling minor league affiliates from these towns and replacing them with dream league teams is a step in the absolute wrong direction, in my opinion, because you're losing an opportunity for me to go to a game and see a Luis Patino. Yeah, absolutely. And we've lost connection there for a second. So it could be me. Um, Absolutely. So, it also it's about fan en- engagement. And that adds the personal connection with being able to, you know, to to still feel that with, with these organizations. And so I feel like from a marketing perspective, they're making the wrong step, whether it's Commissioner Manfred's idea or it's the owner's idea and they're sort of feeding that into him. I don't know. But I just think from a marketing perspective, it's an extremely bad move for the game of baseball. Yeah, the the connection between the organization and the team is important. Um, and so for a kid, you know, if you've got an eight-year-old kid, they may not know who Mackenzie Gore is, but at least they know that this team that's in front of them, these kids, if they play well, they'll be major league ball players. They can play for the Padres because this team is the Padres minor league team. That's something that's a connection that makes sense. When you remove that as a dr- dream team league, now it's a bunch of glorified rec players. I mean, in a sense, trying to chase, trying to hope for that chance to walk onto a team somehow or get scouted. I, I, but the, what doesn't make sense to me is that right now the major league organization pays the income for the players, the develop uh, and the, the trainers, the coaches, um, and they contribute a little bit for the travel and the, and the meals. So if you take that away, you've got you've got a team that's already struggling financially and now they're supposed to be able to recruit and sign and semi-pro pay. ball players right. and pay for and support them and all of this. I, I don't see it's you're, you're asking more from this organization that already just lost what they had because they couldn't support it in the first place. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no question that the, the way that things are happening now is, again, that's why I'd like to see a way for, you know, teams to get carried through. Even if, even if games start going on, that's fine. Just have the clubs not go out of business and then find a way to negotiate in good faith afterwards. And, and quite honestly, yeah, I, I would love it. I mean, the dream league is a bad idea. Uh, There's really no question because no one, fans aren't going to get invested in that. Um, you know, perpetual barnstorming is just not going to work. Uh, there's, there's a lot of reasons, but, uh, you know, on top of that, it's, again, it's just, there's got to, it feels like it's become an either or solution. And I really don't like that. Uh, and the idea that everything has become adversarial doesn't help. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's gotta be some way in here where, you know, yeah, you, you get to see, you know, future major leaguers and you get to be invested in the teams and, and, and communities don't lose baseball 
and it's not this antagonistic thing, you know, it, and, and, you know, heck it just, the players need to be able to live. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing that I really, that's, I take issue with more than anything, quite honestly. Well, these communities, these communities are already struggling financially. And so it's mm-hmm. kind of a, it's kind of a gut punch. It's like they're, they're kicking these, these teams, these organizations while they're already down. It, it doesn't see it right. So, so was, Donovan, you've got a you've got a note here. So you say it's been reported that minor league players are being told there will be no minor league season, and some will be playing in a development league later, respective uh, at their spring training con- complexes. I haven't read that yet. Where did you uh, Where did you see that? I saw that on Twitter, and then Lookout Landing uh, wrote the article to confirm. Now you know to, they wrote the article. Someone with a blue check mark. I thought I saw on Twitter say that, and then they okay. picked it up, uh, and then Emily reached out to people. We, I'd like to ask her what she's heard. And then JJ Cooper also reached out to people and they heard nothing of it. And then once again, these rumors start and minor league baseball has to come out with a statement saying this is not the case. Well, and I think what, you know, I, I'm sure you guys are familiar too. Whenever it's hot stove season, there's this running joke where people say only believe Jeff Passan or a blue check mark because the rumors just fly yeah. so thick and so heavy And the individual who wrote that first report, I believe he trusted his sources, which is a valid thing. But the hard time about this type of a situation is there's so much speculation. There's so much what if it could go this way, it could go that way. And I spoke with several GMs. I spoke with several agents. They all said that direction is strongly likely but you also have to word it very very clear nothing has been confirmed nothing has been confirmed and i think minor league baseball made a good decision to release that statement saying look hold up hold up no 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 nothing has been confirmed yet and the the trend that i noticed between the gms and the agents is that they all agreed you have to decide what happens with Major League Baseball first. They are protected by the union. They have to be able to work through all of the union details, work through stuff with the owners. Then the minor league guys are going to get into that discussion and they're going to decide. And I think one of the toughest things about the minor league aspect is that kind of how we touched on before, it's such a fan-driven industry. It's so dependent upon fans. It's so dependent upon putting people in the seats, you know, getting in, buying the merchandise, being available for for the, you know, between innings activities where they've got, you know, zoo animals running around in the outfield and blow up people and all the, the things that make minor league baseball what it is. And the hardest part about that it's a perfect storm. You have the contraction situation. You've got teams who are on the doorstep of going, are we about to be done? Because this figuratively was supposed to be their final season if the commissioner gets his way. So you factor all of that and you factor in the coronavirus. You can't pack these stadiums right now. It's not feasible. It's right. not wise. And so, like I said before, it's a perfect storm and it puts a lot of Absolutely, and, and it's another connection lost there. It, it's it, and it works in Major League Baseball's favor, and that's the big thing. What's going on right now with with this? And we're waiting for them to come back um, and said it, announced it. Um, so, no, what what you're saying, Emily, is definitely the sensible thing to do. You wait until you hear it from an actual approved, verifiable source. 
uh, it's it's just hard to to look at where we're at right now and envision them sending the kids out to the affiliates to go play ball. I, I just I imagine that they're going to tell them to stay home, keep training. Here's your tr- workout regimen, and we'll see you next spring. Well, and I spoke to people before too about I put this out on Twitter, which, as we all know, tweet at your own risk because baseball <laughs> fans are definitely on edge right now. And I mentioned something about, hey, friendly reminder, we can't just start baseball again. You can't Mm -hmm. just put guys back out on the field. You're going to have to get two to three weeks at minimum to get these guys reconditioned for an Mm on-game routine, get them back in their field routines that they do, and then put them out there. Because multiple front office people, player development people, coordinators, they have all said... We're losing, we're losing Emily again. The same amount of time. You're flying to your pants. Do we all want baseball back? Yes, we do. But you never want to push it to the point where it's putting people at risk yeah. to the best of your ability. Obviously, it's a different situation. These organizations are doing their very best to try and make the right decision to protect their players. But at the end of the day, it's a very, very tight ticking clock because this year isn't going to slow down and you don't want to jump the gun too quickly and risk putting more people in harm's way with the virus. Yeah, I think there's also something to be said in this. this uh, I mean, it affects minor league, uh, definitely, but also I would say major league ball, which is the whole fan um, aspect of it. And, you know, obviously just televised minor league games, it, that's you know that that becomes extremely difficult but some of the ideas that have been floated about having major league games without fans and i have i guess i have yet to hear of any you know suggested solution that uh, doesn't man we're losing we're losing contact again so that's that's uh, phoenix being by the way, can you guys hear me? Because I'm getting a, a, yes. a reconnection thing. Yeah, we okay, got gotcha. you. Um, but the whole thing is, say, like, you know, putting the league in Phoenix, for example. Uh, we're talking about thousands of people by the time you take into account all the players and all of the personnel. And that's just for the games. That's not taking into account, you know, any front office or any, any kind of, uh, you know, support within the stadium. And, you know, there's like 50 miles between if you're going from Surprise to, to Mesa. So it's not like they're close together. And Phoenix is huge. You know, I mean, and it's not actually quite it's there are areas that are spread out between where people live. But when you get to the places where people live, it's just like a lot of other places. It's like L.A. or something. And so you this idea that you can somehow protect uh in fact i was talking with let's put it this way a journalist whose name's already come up but i won't go into who um where they've this idea of you know protecting thousands of people for months such that nobody gets infected uh if they can find a way to do that, that would be great. And that would probably be really useful. I'm sure the military would love that, right. for example, which I would argue is probably more important than baseball. <laughs> but, um, or at least there are a lot of people who would say that. <laughs> but, you, you you know, it's not that it's not doable. It's that with what we know now, it's not doable. And so if you're going to be able to protect thousands of people 
four months at a time. I think by the time we're able to do that, it's going to be around the same time where it's safe for fans to come as well. So why are we waiting to do it without fans when by the time it's safe, it's probably also going to be safe for the fans. I don't think it's like, I don't think there's an in-between step. Well, the, the idea that makes sense to me is that base, Major League Baseball is backed by these billion-dollar TV contracts. So they have a financial incentive to try to put a product on the screen, whether there's fans in attendance or not, because just getting the broadcast up, they're able to generate revenue. Where for the minor league teams, that is absolutely not the case. Yeah, that, I mean, and that's I'm not disagreeing with that, but just I feel like societally – by the time it becomes safe to play baseball at the major league level, it's going to have to be safe to also play it at the minor league level and also yeah. have fans because, I mean, they're, they're talking about right now, like somehow just putting all of the NBA at Walt Disney World. And that might actually be doable. You could effectively turn that into kind of a biodome, but that's also because there are a lot fewer players and there are a lot fewer games. And they just don't take up the level of space yeah. that a ballpark takes up. So, um, you know, and I have no idea how many courts there are at Walt Disney World. But, you know, that at least sounds possible. Like you could isolate Walt Disney World. Yeah. I'll buy that. Um, you can't isolate Phoenix. It's not like you can kick out all the residents right. or something, you know. Emily, I want to go back to your article and and talk about, the, you know, the effect that that article has had since it's come out. You know, I, I don't know if more than baseball has been around longer than your article, but you've had places, uh, you had uh, Twitter handles like Adopt a Minor League Player, and he is now just, they just passed, we, our podcast uh, sponsors a player, a Padre player in, their, in, our, in the system. And the fact that it's kind of, brought this whole out to life, but also kind of created other avenues where fans and people can get involved and make an impact. Yeah, I think it honestly just comes down to the fact that I jumped on with a movement, you know, that had been championed by um, several people before my piece came along. You know, we talked on, you know, earlier who is, you know, such an incredible talent and such an incredible voice for Major League and Minor League Baseball. Um, it, it really was just, it was part of the joint effort. You know, I think the fact that so much focus was starting to kind of shift towards it, that it just brought more of that educational perspective to so many fans. And it, it brought them the reality of the game. And I think so many fans just didn't have an idea of what was really going on behind the scenes. And you look at how these fans are wired. They want to back their guys. They want to, yeah. you know, look at their organization and say, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a Cubs fan. Or I'm a Padres fan. I want to know how are those guys being treated? Are they, you know, being prepped to be the next generation of major league players? Or are they going through the McDonald's drive through for the ninth time this week? Because it's all they can afford. It, it opens people's eyes. And I think that was really my biggest goal with that was just to say, look, I'm not out to give Major League Baseball a black eye. I'm out to educate people. I want people to understand the reality of this game, not only for the guys in uniform that they see on the field, but also when the stadium lights get turned off and these guys go out to their car and go, do I have enough gas in my car to get back to my host family? It's, it's those questions that a lot of people just don't process 
So being able to put that piece out and having so many players take that risk of speaking out, you know, putting their careers on the line by sharing their stories, that was an incredible weight to carry because I said, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do something to burn these guys because they did so much to step out on behalf of this game that they love and trust me to tell their story. And it was an incredible honor to be able to do that. You know, and you're, you're seeing a lot more people on Twitter that are no longer in the game coming out with their own stories. And, uh, you know, they're, they're horrific. They're comical now because they're, you know, they have other jobs and they've gone on. But, like, you, you hear the – and I've read several of these threads and it's like, oh, my God, just – you know, having the bologna sandwich and there's your, you know, there's your meal for lunch. And then you got to go out and play a game at 80, you know, 90 degree weather at, at optimal playing ability. And it's just being a joke. Well, so the accessibility of social media, I think, helped helped bring that into people's awareness that you've got people like the picture of the the slice of bread with a piece of cheese on it and here's your your lunch um i've seen players that have posted like this was my final paycheck of a triple a i was a triple a player we just won the championship and this was my tax return this is what i made all year so this is somebody that I've, clearly their baseball career just closed they're not interested in burning they're not worried about burning bridges and now they can tell their story you've got somebody like eric sim that is just blatantly out there with f-bombs everywhere <laughs> but but he's championing that you're telling the story for the people that are afraid to tell it because but then 10 15 20 years ago there wasn't that accessibility there wasn't that way for somebody to get their message out and have it be seen by a by a broad market I mean, what they go to sports illustrated and hey i've got a story for you mm-hmm. and they gotta come on take a hike but now sports illustrated is looking for stories they're looking for writers and and they're happy to jump on something like this mm-hmm. um but i'm grateful for outlets like the athletic that have been able to find a way to go about their business without being attached to the business of baseball without the, the you've got a beat writer, but they don't have to necessarily have that intimate relationship with the team. So they're able to go a little bit on that rough edge, or you've got writers and an analysts that used to work for like fan graphs. And now it's packaged in a, in a, a professional um, journalist quality package. Uh, it, it lends some credence to it because mm-hmm. Emily, your story you did kind of summarize what I'd seen in three or four other other sources before. You kind of put it all together and, and knitted it together into a nice little hand. But it was but it is a nice package that was easy to digest and easy for the casual fan to understand and relate. That wow, there actually is something real going on here. Yeah, and that um, I think was really my biggest goal because I remember not long before I started that whole process of interviewing players and interviewing staff and spouses and, and all that, I remember seeing some tweets from Sean Doolittle who, you know, going along the lines of those who have used social media in a positive way, Sean Doolittle and Adam Wainwright with the Cardinals, they, they have done such a superb job in my opinion, where they have, used their platform as a respected major league player who is not again not out to try and slam anyone they're just out there saying hey guys yeah maybe my signing bonus varies a little bit from a 27th round pick but i live that same life 
I mean, I remember talking with Sean Doolittle for that piece and him telling me stories about trying to return an air mattress to the store that had a hole in it because it had popped and he couldn't patch it. And he said, you know, yeah, my bonus was a little bit different than some of the other guys, but I had to sleep on the floor of a bus. I mean, you have guys telling stories about, you know, rock, paper, scissors are flipping a coin to see who's going to sleep on the floor under the seats. And then you have to, you know, you get up in the middle of an all night bus ride and you have to try and get to the bathroom without stepping on nine or 10 guys who are sleeping on the floor. And I remember one of the stories I think that jumped out to me the most is talking about the care of an organization for their players and looking at one in particular pitcher who I'll keep unnamed for obvious reasons. He was supposed to start the following day on a road trip. They ended up going extra innings that night before. They had to take a bus trip that went all night. I think it was about 11 hours on the bus. He ended up sleeping on the floor and he got up and said, I was so sore and so stiff. And I had to go out and start the game that night. They had maybe three hours of sleep, had to get to the field and had to go out there and perform. And I think that's one of the things that most people need to be aware of is not only are these guys living in extremely limited environments, they're expected to still be the best of the best. And if they're not, who knows if they're going to make it or if they're going to get cut. So it's really, there's an obvious imbalance there. And I think it's something that definitely needs to be addressed. You have a, a name that popped into my mind when you were telling the story about the pitcher. It was Todd Van Steenzel, who's, and he's playing it in indie ball now, or he's trying to play an indie ball. Nobody's playing right now. Um, but he's been very uh, forthcoming about his stories. And it's you, you follow him on Twitter and you don't think about it. And then all of a sudden here pops a story. Oh, hey, I'm going to tell you about this time that we were in extra innings and something happened. And it was me and the top prospect. I just pitched two days in a row. Top prospect was fresh, but he wasn't scheduled to pitch for another day. So guess who pitched? It was me. So one of the things that with this contraction, so a, an organization is going to go from – uh, from seven to nine minor league rosters to five to seven minor league rosters. And you look at all of the teams right now have between seven and nine teams, if you include the complex leagues. So they're going to lose one or two teams off of that. So they're not just going to lose the youngest guys or the the weakest links or whatever. They're going to lose a lot of these players that are utility people that are kind of the the glue uh hold everybody accountable kind of person um you know that maybe they don't have a chance of making the major leagues but they still fill an important role uh but now if you have to try to go for quality over quantity those guys would lose their job what you what you're saying basically is crash davis wouldn't be playing right right well, I mean, he almost walked out the door when he walked into that place anyway. Like, what am yeah, I here? You, 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 yeah. you see my point, though. Like, that's that's exactly the kind of player you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Or the guy that was dra- drafted out of college. And he's a couple years, you know, I, we've talked to several guys on the podcast here that, that are that profile. So they signed for five grand as a college senior, um, and they're happy to do whatever's asked of them. They'll play any position they need to play. They just want a place to play. And and there's value in that. And so seeing those guys lose that dream is something that, that I don't know, it's, it touches me. I, I don't want to think about those guys having to just pack it up because 
a $10 billion a year corporation industry can't support something that costs a, a couple hundred grand annually to run. Yeah, that's I, that's actually one of the things that I find, uh, and this is why I feel like this story needs to be reported essentially with the level of messiness that is in there is there is a lot of um, the way that the finances come out in terms of cost benefit is not something that honestly makes sense to me because it doesn't it doesn't the when you run the numbers as far as I can tell it doesn't cost MLB nearly as much as you would think it does for them to maintain their farm systems and they're also just setting stuff up so that you know the way the players are living they should be putting more in anyway and yet somehow they're claiming that it's already too much money when it's an insanely small percentage to begin with and yet this is the future of the team so i'm not really sure why the the that i mean and, and you actually you've heard these terms like um for instance, when, when Commissioner Manfred talks about baseball, he doesn't talk about baseball. He doesn't talk about the game. He literally refers to the product. That is the term you will use him, hear him use in interviews mostly, and I find that very, very strange. Um, players are – I'm not sure if you – maybe you did write this story, Emily, but um, the idea of players as commodities – um, and that that's literally a term that gets used uh, to talk about players, prospects, whatever. And it just feels like things have been turned so much into an, eco an economy sort yeah. of language and therefore being thought of in financial terms. Um, you know, baseball, sort of the tacit understanding, and I think the reason that we have thing not the reason, but... The, the say antitrust uh, or exemption gets doesn't get contested as much is because it is considered a public trust. Anything that is a major sport in anywhere, basically, part of the idea is that it's not just you know it's it's something that's integral in a societal way, and so to just think of it as a corporate entity where you want to get as much financial gain as possible at the expense of insert here it's it's not a good long-term vision and it just it's not what sports are supposed to be yeah emily well it certainly seems like that's how it's being run that's exactly how it's being run emily you there so you uh you mentioned Everyone's cutting now. We have a bad connection here today, folks. I really, I'm really appreciate you guys sticking with me. Uh, we have lost. We're all reconnecting right they now. Stripped them of their second round pick, uh, despite being warned in 2017 for this whole sign stealing thing. I, I everybody looked at it, and everybody kind of had that face palm moment of, "Is that really it? You're going to tell me that the coaches, the managers, the front office had no idea that this was going on." None of the players had any idea that this was wrong. Um, and so you're going to just basically throw one guy under the bus and give him a slap on the hand two years, three years after they had already been in trouble for pretty much the same thing. Well, regardless of the, the you know, the one player, or to me, not one, one player, one personnel, one, you know, like low level, you know, 
just employee with the team. Oh, but it was his um, whole idea. It was all him, right? Apparently, yeah. And, and um, <laughs> in fact, John Boy had a great, if you saw his little video that he put out on Twitter right afterwards and how it's basically describing this guy as kind of bullying the players into the sign. It was, it was very well done. But um, one of the things that, that several people have pointed out was, uh, I think it was in the off season after 2017, that um, Manfred made it very, very clear that any future electronic sign stealing anything, like basically if it involved the technology and it involved sign stealing, by definition, um, you would have, um, you know, that's the GM and the manager. There would be some level of repercussions with them. Yeah. And, you know, that was even reiterated back in January, back when uh, we were dealing with the Astro science dealing. Somehow between January and now, those rules changed. Well, we're distracted because of the whole virus. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this, this is only a everything we're talking about is MLB leveraging, unfortunately. It really I is. Wish it yeah. wasn't like that. Yeah. So we forgot about, we forgot about the story because they let this drag on. Because when the Astros, uh, punishment came down it seemed like the red sox one was going to be right around the corner like oh we're finishing our investigation on it that also too. seemed like it was going to be worse yeah that was the impression you kept yeah. it did yeah yeah so i mean joey cora was clearly involved in what was going on in houston and then he goes to boston alex cora i'm sorry alex cora thank you padre fan right, right there yeah <laughs> and, and and the, I mean, who, with the the manager of the, somebody with the Yankees even said, "Oh no, it was was it Beltran." Beltran said something about, "Oh well, they just got the the words the people that that were involved in all of this." For him to get away with, there's no baseball this year. Maybe they're going to play some baseball, but he already lost his job. So okay, you're not allowed to get a job for the rest of this year. Like, what what is the punishment there? Uh, there, what, there isn't one. You're right, because all the suspensions are still live through the twenty through 2020. If there is no 2020 season, that it's not like we've stopped any kind of suspensions and they carry over to 2021. They're just over at the end of you know when the 2020 playoffs would have been. So if there's no season, there's there's nothing. So what message does that send to the rest of the league and to the whole industry of baseball? Go ahead and uh, cheat. Yeah, it's worth it. Basically, that that well, I would say it does two things. One, go ahead and cheat, and two, that MLB isn't going to take the time to investigate because when they do, this is all that happens anyway. So why bother? Well, and then we found out that people have been reporting this to the commissioner's office for months, if not years, and nobody did anything. And it wasn't until Mike Fires finally came out and blew the whistle publicly. I don't even think he intended to, to blow the whistle publicly, but that's what wound up happening. It wasn't until this became a, a publicly known thing that anybody really stopped to pay attention to it. And that's sad. It's they, everybody's just apologizing for getting caught, even the owner and, and the commissioner and everybody. It's if, if nobody ever got caught, then this all would have been swept under the rug and they'd still be doing it. And I, I told somebody the other day, I said, you know, if I had a choice, I would choose to go back to complaining about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado's contract negotiations because that was so much less than everything that baseball has suddenly become as far as complications go. And it's, I don't think you could have asked for more drama 
for the game this yeah. year. I mean, just going going through last year and into this year, the hard part about it, I think, from a fan perspective, is that you're seeing now more than ever the business side and the politics inside baseball and it's showing so much more of its face than it normally does and I think it's kind of throwing the fans for a loop because they're saying what are you doing to our game like when when did this become a thing when did this start happening and it's a clashing of two worlds because baseball is never going to stop being a business there are owners and there's revenue and there's opportunities to make money and that's never going to be a fan-friendly perspective it's it's more about the revenue and how do we bring in more and it's, there's never going to be a completely common ground on that. And I think because of all of the, the the fines that have been out, the penalties, the you know the sign stealing situation, and now the latest with Boston, it's it's very very hard for fans to process. But I don't think there's ever going to be a balance there because it's just two completely separate perspectives about the same game. Mm-hmm. Emily, so, by the way, you realize that you and I get blame slash credit for drawing attention to two of the bigger problems this past year right <laughs> think about it we actually do well you know what i i wear that badge with honor because as do i getting getting to be on the front lines with meredith is like a dream come true so i'll take that flag <laughs> well okay i i would say be careful what you wish for sweetie <laughs> oh yeah so your guy, your colleague at the Athletic, Jason Stark, published an article today that I found pretty interesting, and he was talking to a bunch of players, including Max Scherzer, uh, last spring, uh, when all these allegations were coming out about what do we need to do, what actually has to happen to get all this stuff to stop, and the message was that the players need to take responsibility for the game. They need to police it themselves in a way. So the the guys in the Astros dugout that saw what was going on, you know intrinsically, you know what's right and wrong. You know where the edge, where that boundary lies. In fact, the commissioner's office even came out and defined it clearly. So it's up to the it, it unfort and it shouldn't have to be up to the players but it is it's up to them really to police this because it's clear that the commissioner's office isn't interested in doing it you know that the owners and the, the Astros just pocketed massive amounts of money for winning that world series uh the Red Sox have pocketed a bunch of money you know it and there's no there's no penalty for them but the players understand that. So Mike Fires goes to another team. He sees his guy get lit up, and he knows that the Astros knew what was coming. And you, you, there were some interesting articles that came out this year where they looked at a, a pitcher that got lit up by the Astros, and within the next week they were they were sent down to AAA, they were released, whatever, and it affects these guys' careers. So yeah. Uh, player from the Astros might be able to make a whole bunch of money because he had a MVP season, but then the guy that got sent down, he may be losing his career and it may be affecting his family. There was the, the, the guy that's suing uh, major league baseball. Is he suing the baseball or the Astros? Uh, he, well, actually it was both uh, Bolsinger. Is that his name? It's been, yes. Out, Has it? Okay. Yeah. But he, he and his he wife was. had to go to, yeah. he had to go to Japan to find an opportunity mm-hmm. to try to play and support his, his wife and kid. And not all these guys are making 20 million bucks a year. There's a bunch of them that they've been scraping by. They've had prior obligations and now they finally have a chance to make some real money and it gets just pulled out right from under them because somebody else is cheating. That's, that's not fair. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot 
that, you know, that's with cheating, but I almost feel like all of the things we're talking about, uh, to a certain extent, there, there's, there's, a, I feel like there's a general imbalance um, in terms of, you know, the, to go back to say the, the, the MLBPA, uh, the players union used to be much stronger than it was in terms of things like negotiation. That's, that's changed. I think that might've first changed under Selig. I'm the wrong person to talk to about the, the specifics, but, um, everything we're talking about, uh, can kind of come down to, you know, yeah, cheating and self-policing, uh, or, uh, you know, for instance, the minor league players aren't part of the union, aren't part of any union. And if there was some way to find a way to incorporate that, um, and, and I mean, I realize I'm throwing out something that, that's controversial in itself with players. I mean, this is not something that I've, you know, some players are going to be for it, some players aren't. Uh, one thing that I think would be great, you know, to get back to the stuff I've been doing, uh, the one thing that... Every piece of equipment that gets used on the field, uh, you know, in, in terms of like what the players use, has to be approved by the rules committee. And I find some of the things like if you literally like Ichiro's bat, his two-tone bat would have had to have been approved by the rules committee because it was more than one color. The one piece of equipment that has doesn't have to be approved by anybody, but that every single player uses in every single game is the ball. Mm. All you need to do is change that one rule, expand that one rule or add on to it saying that in addition to all the rest of the equipment, the ball has to be approved by the rules committee, which does include the players association and players. And again, I realize that gets thorny. That means Rawlings has to open their doors, all that kind of stuff. But the level of player involvement and, you know, players essentially I'm not sure taking responsibility is is the right word because I think they want to do that, but it does feel like they're the in the best position to push back, if, if that makes sense. Like right now, it feels like ne every negotiation is very heavily weighted towards the owners and towards the commissioner's office and balance the the, yeah. the people who are in the best position to balance against it is the players. Well, it's really important that that you. That, that uh, you know, journalists like you and Emily are there because if it comes to self-policing, if I'm going to make, you know, several hundred thousand dollars for making the playoffs and I see my buddy, it, there's a, an ability to, to get an edge to win a game, I'm going to overlook anything and not, be, you know, obviously break that clubhouse code, but also, you know, him cheating is going to help me make a little more money. And there's one thing about people that make money, there's never enough. And um, it, it's funny, I read this, uh, read this, interview with a woman who dated Agnon Khashoggi, who was a arms dealer in the 90s and uh, in the 80s. And she said, it, it's amazing how people with just extraordinary wealth, it's even not enough then. It, like, it doesn't matter. So if you're going to ask these players to police themselves, they're not going to police themselves. And if you're going to ask the league to do it, you know, there has to be some kind of almost an independent uh, body that oversees that, that will... You know, we'll hold MLB to the fire, and it can't be, it shouldn't be a journalist. It certainly shouldn't be, um, you know, people have to do the research that you've done. Mm -hmm. To have to go, Emily, to have to go beyond the veil of minor league baseball and have these people not tell you their names or what affiliation they're with, uh, to be able to tell the truth. And there, and that's where the the power needs to come back to the people and back to 
the fans that makes the game legitimate again. And and that's I would not mind seeing an independent body actually. That's something that I've thrown around not even not even in a concrete way, but but there are certain things that it does feel like it's not going to change unless there is some kind of external arbiter. Yeah. Um, and, and every problem we've talked about so far, it feels like you would, the, the only way you're going to get sort of, you know, turn it into arbitration or, or kind of a permanent external committee. Yeah, we're totally throwing out ideas that I've never seen in print before, but you know, I, I think there might be something to it. If this yeah. is a public trust, if this is America's game, let's make it happen as opposed to turning it into something that is, uh, you know, like riddled with controversy. I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of like, heck, even this past postseason, when is, when is the last time we had something cool and not controversial? <laughs> Fernando Tatis like, Jr. That's was that's like, it. That's it right there. Fernando Tatis Jr. made his debut this year. Chris Paddock made the team out of spring training. The two coolest thing that happened to baseball this year, uh, and it wasn't controversial. And now we need Gore and Patino. We need we need players on mounds to to get us distracted from all this controversy and actually focusing back on the game again. Hey, Emily, I wanted to see I see Clinton Lumberkings that were on the list. I know the the 42 list isn't in in, you know, isn't in stone and I'm sure it's changing. And, you know, with the uh, with the last paragraph of Jeff Passan's article, you know, I'm sure teams and owners are trying to jockey for positioning for you know the politics of keeping their team in there, but it looks like the Clinton Lumber Kings in the Midwest League is slated to um, is slated to be on that list. Have you heard anything from them? Are are they just kind of waiting and seeing? Are have you heard anything? Yeah, they're. Um, I've spoken with a few people associated with the team, and they're in a very similar position as the other teams who are you know, tentatively on this list, which several people have confirmed this list is subject to change. Um, One of the biggest reasons for the decision that was made by the commissioner was really a large part, really in large part to do with the facilities, which, okay, I, I can see that to a certain degree, but I always come back to the fact that baseball's revenue and the amount of money that these teams are taking in I feel like there's ways around cutting the amount of teams that they're looking to cut I will I will say in their defense at the rookie level I think there is some room to cut down some of those teams I think there may be possibly you know an excessive amount of rookie teams but to cut double A affiliates to cut high affiliates I, I should point like, out I'm wearing, uh, you'll appreciate this, Emily, at the moment I am literally wearing the Erie Sea Wolves Copa hat. Oh my nice. goodness, I am so Which proud of you. rocks if you haven't seen it. It's are, they, are they the pinatas? Yeah. This is, oh, I, the I pinatas, that is badass. Oh, that is beautiful. That, that is awesome. Beautiful. Yeah. And as a Padre and fan, segueing, go ahead. Segwaying into the well, Erie Sea Wolves. Well, I mean, she's Detroit Wolves. though, so. <laughs> segwaying into uh, the Erie Sea Wolves. Uh, Greg Gania and um, Greg Coleman, who are both, they've both been extremely instrumental in trying to plead the Seawolves case after pouring in a bunch of money to renovating their stadium, to updating the facilities. And now they're on this tentative list going, okay, what was the purpose of all that? What, what should I, you know, how should we approach this? 
it's it's a tough spot for all of these teams to be because they understand how much they rely on the community and kind of how we talked about before if you take affiliated baseball you take the allure of seeing future major leaguers of seeing a team that represents or talent that represents your team and then all of a sudden these teams are left with how do we draw fans what's the pull anymore because it's it's young men obviously all trying to pursue the same thing but that affiliation aspect is lost and i think that really does put a major major blow to the communities because they just don't have that allure anymore. Yeah. I went to several games this last week of the season. We were in Chattanooga. We went to a um, Smokies game. We went to a Jackson Generals game. And even in our, our affiliate up here in Lake Elsinore, like a Tuesday game, I saw I saw Mackenzie Gore pitch on a Tuesday, and there was maybe 500 people there. Maybe. Um, it, it's, it, it, you know, the, the cost-benefit analysis of that is, is not, it's almost every every person at the door really matters. And, you know, in baseball, major league baseball, it doesn't really make sense for them to, to spend the money, to lend the money, to to really give any money to any of these affiliates to, to give them a chance to up their facilities. Well, so a few years ago, Travis Sochik came out with an article with five thirty eight, um, and it was talking about the player development system and the strategy and openly debating i think he was even talking to an astros uh a player development person um the the idea of containing all of the player development at the at the spring training complexes and then and, and using that as a pure farm system maybe having one or two levels of minor league ball rather than the the current stratification that there is um and it was it was looking at it from a pure business and player development standpoint I think what's lost a little bit in there is the the notion of growing the game and giving accessibility, um, you know, being able to go and experience a baseball game. Because it's just, you get a kid from Pasco, Washington, uh, you, what, you're supposed to just watch the Mariners on TV, but if you actually take the kid to a game and they have a chance to go see and experience the game in person, it's a whole different thing. That's yeah. what captures us, you know, the, the whole romance of the sport. Well, so, and some of the, some of the, th- I mean, I did my, all my graduate work in Montana. And so when I saw the entire pioneer league being cut, there are four teams in Montana. All four of them are on that list. That suddenly yeah. means if you live in Montana, you literally have to drive eight hours to get to the nearest professional baseball. That's, and um, some of these cities plus, have had baseball for over a hundred years. Yeah. That, I mean, Chattanooga, Chattanooga. Like, is, is way older than a lot of the, most of the major league teams. I mean, all probably with the Reds. 1888, um, I believe is when yeah, they had made the, uh, baseball in uh, Chattanooga. Exactly. And so, so, you know, I don't, that's another thing I guess I don't understand is that if it, it comes down to the intent, um, you know, and as you're talking about this whole, if it's purely player development, if it's all just about MLB, then, you know, maybe that's the thing. On the other hand, is it really the goal to eliminate this entire swath of the country, for example? I mean, and there's other situations where, you know, are, are you are you trying to alienate fans? Um, right. And there's also a lot of places where because of things like blackouts, uh, you know, people will talk about, OK, well, if you have such and such cable package, you don't have the blackouts. Well, there are a lot of places where 
they don't even have access to those cable packages. Yeah. You know, they'll be blacked and they're blacked out for four or five teams. And you, it's not just like, yes, yeah, cable packages exist somewhere, but not with the service that they can get. So you just don't ever get to watch that team regardless. So I got about, how so, is, yeah. I got about so 12% think, think in my phone the, left, guys. <laughs> okay. Bye. Uh, but I, I think back to the, we have a whole generation of people that grew up as Braves fans or as Cubs fans because they were able to watch the team on WGN or TBS. Wherever they were, they liked Mark Grace and they became a Cubs fan. Or they like Terry Pendleton and they're a, a Braves fan just because they were able to watch it. And they may live in Billings, Montana. Yeah. They don't care that the closest team to them is the Twins. They're still an eight-hour drive away. So who gives a flip? I, it's It's... It's who they have access to. They're the ones that they're gonna they're gonna be drawn to, and so if that access is being able to go to to the ballpark and actually watch a team, then maybe they're gonna become like in El Paso. I was surprised by how many Padres hats I saw when I would walk around El Paso, and nobody was a Padres fan before the Chihuahua was there, but now you got a bunch of Padres fans out in the west end of Texas. That's a good point, Emily. When you see you know when you're in uh, in Erie. And some of those ballparks, do you see all Tiger fans or do you see fans of the region, maybe a Cubs fan, maybe a Cleveland Indians fan? Yeah, it, it really depends on the area. Um, I think with this, the Seawolves specifically, they are in a tough spot because they are smack in the middle of Pirates country. And um, that's, that's really a Pirates-focused area. But the fact that they've been able to start pulling in bigger names, you get that draw from the fans of saying, oh, I heard about this kid named Tarek Scooball or Matt Manning. I want to go see what he's all about. I hear he's pretty good. Plus discount beer tonight or a bobblehead. <laughs> right, so right. I'm going to go in and check it out. And I think that does help if you are in a little bit more of a tricky area. But that's the hard thing. You have the Flying Tigers down in Lakeland. They have the benefit of being the Tigers spring training home base. So they have a beautiful facility they have the opportunity to pull fans in that way. But if you're not exactly in the region of where your major league club is based, it does make it more tricky because you have to battle other fan bases who may be close by. Yeah. Uh, going up to Lake Elsinore, you see a lot of Angels fans. You see a lot of Dodger fans, but they're watching the Padres minor league system. Um, real quick before we before we get out of here, my phone, my phone might just die. You know, they are going to chop the the draft down to what 20 rounds. I think when, uh, when all this is said and done, I realized actually with the NFL draft recently, we're on a pace, at least certainly for this season, because they're cutting the draft so drastically that we're going to draft far fewer players than the NFL. Wow. For 2020, which is insane, like a fraction. So when 21, so, yeah. 22 come around, they're still going to, that's the regular draft is going to go down to, to 20. Is that what I was hearing? That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. 20, 20 is the round. 20 is what I've heard, which is basically half. They want to cut it in half. Well, you know, and I saw, once again, I saw some, someone on Twitter and it might've been a scout or someone to that effect that uh, it said like, and that'll be enough to fill up all the teams that are getting cut. So still with it being at 20 rounds, you can have plenty of players to uh, field teams in the rookies in the short season and all these 42 teams that are being, does that does that assume that every player signs? Right. That's that would be assuming. I would suspect. I don't know. He, yeah. He didn't elaborate. Right. 
Well, you guys, I uh, I am so happy to have you guys come on our hundredth episode. Um, you guys cut out in and out. I cut out on you guys because I guess I have <laughs> too many electronic devices going on in my home. I don't know. That's See, this right. is the problem with electronics and baseball. Right. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully your sound engineer can patch it all back together. Oh, that would be just kind of cut where I'm having to talk over there being dead silence. <laughs> um, I, 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 um, I hope you can just appreciate my appreciation for both of you to come on this podcast on our hundredth episode uh, and just tell us your guys' stories and, and to and to hear how you guys see the game. And and that's why I, I wanted I've never had Meredith. We had Meredith on a little chat with Chris from Turn to Pair and man, she was a firebrand and I didn't know you know, because it was off the record and it was not being recorded. So she's like, This is me recorded, right? Okay. Dig, 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 dig. And I'm like, oh my God, we got to have her on the. But then, you know, then we messaged her, like, hey, you can't really say that on our podcast. We like, we still want access to major league guys or like whatever. And she's like, oh no, I'm good. Yeah, no, no, I, we, you know, we had this discussion on Twitter. I right. know. I kept my mouth shut on a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, spoiler, I kept my mouth shut on a lot of stuff. People, and em- sorry. God, no, and Emily, you were going to be our. You know, you're going to be our Midwest insider this season. Our Friar insider our, was the term. Yeah, the Friar. We, we had so many just beautiful, noble plans before, you know, as REM put it, it's the end of the world as we know it. Ugh. And that, that's that been the hardest part. I spoke with, um, you know, the, the wonderful Ben Woods out in San Diego, who has been so, so good. I, I believe to you guys as well, you've had interactions with them. Um, we had all sorts of plans about, you know, reports from Fort Wayne and yeah. talking about, you know, Midwest League Padres prospects. It changed for everybody. And I, I want to specify how special it is for us to be able to come on for the 100th episode. Like you, you guys have done such an incredible job with, keeping the fans looped in like bringing such such an incredible you know sense of of perspective to the minor league system you know talking about the major league guys and you appreciate Luis Patino to the point where you got me a shirt yeah my days I just can't I can't (laughs) even imagine that and even Luis told me he was impressed with the fact (laughs) that you went to the trouble to make a shirt he goes I can't believe they did that but no in all seriousness Having, you know, and I know I can speak for Meredith on this too. Happy birthday. Good job. So proud of you guys. Keep up the good work. It's really an honor to know both of you. And before I let you guys go, I got to tell you this, Emily and and, uh, and Meredith. So one of the podcasts I listened to was the show before the show that Sam Dykstra, uh, Ben, Benjamin Hill and uh, Tyler Mon, and they just did a virtual game where they took two teams, they took the Rocket City Trash Pandas and the Hartford Yard Goats, but then they drafted players from the whole minor league system. So they had Wander Franco, you know, they had Adley Rushman on a team. Awesome. Um, I think it was Tyler Mon who who picked. I think no, I think it was Sam Dykstra who chose Mackenzie Gore as like the first pick, and he started that game. So I actually posted a couple of videos of Mackenzie Gore pitching in a Hartford Yard Goats. Jersey, and then later on, Luis Patino <laughs> came in. Oh my god! I'll, I'll post them again just to tag Go those guys. For it. Yeah, I love it. Oh my god! And I was—I watched the whole thing, and you know they—they uh, 
it was just like a virtual game, but they were talking about the game itself. And then all the insights that they had to each player was really interesting uh, to hear that. But I thought I would throw that out there and I'll put those uh, videos on, on Twitter. Um, thanks again. Uh, Meredith, you want to let uh, Meredith and Emily, do you want to let us know how we can get a hold of you on social media? Uh, I oh. get, okay. <laughs> you want to go first or shall I? <laughs> you, go first. you go first. All right. Well, um, I suppose I basically just on Twitter uh, and, you know, since you guys will put something up, people will be able to figure out the spelling, but the handle is short for baseball astrophysics, which is uh, BBL underscore and then astrophysics without the I because it's from long enough ago where there were character limits. So, um, but yeah, people can pretty much find me. Yeah, and my stuff, um, I'm actually working on a project with Rob Friedman, a.k.a. Pitching Ninja. So I'll have a piece coming up with him here soon. Did a really fun analysis piece that I'm excited about. Hoping to have that up in the next week or so. And then a few things in the works for The Athletic and hopefully more Baseball America stuff here soon as well. So we're trying to continue cranking things out. We just have to be a little bit more creative with it. And yeah, my problem is I can't do anything until I can get 2020 baseballs. So <laughs> anyone, you know, who can get me there, they're, they're out there somewhere. I know they're already made. Oh. I saw that they're, they're selling the ones that have the London stamp on them. I, I, I know. And they're, they're going to be, if you go back to my November stuff, uh, memorabilia balls, but even those, I hope, and again, that's where I can crack them open and look at the batch codes. Uh, but I need baseballs. So if anybody, you know, give me a shout out on Twitter. I have absolutely used that before. It does work. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, but I can't write anything on baseballs until there are more baseballs. Find her baseballs. She needs to work. She's knitting. Come on. I mean, she loves to do that, but still, I'm sure she would like to be. The knitting is critical to the research, though. We don't need to go into that now, but I couldn't do one without the other. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you coming on. You can reach me on Twitter at SD Donovan and Zippy. I am at Zippy underscore TMS. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world. As we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, life